morning again. All right, if you want to turn in your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 33, we're going to continue in our study through the book of Isaiah. You can find Isaiah 33 on page 593 if you're using the Pew Bible. So while you turn there, let me just uh, ask you do, you, do you ever treat God like your last resort? Is it, is it normal at all for you to only go to God or maybe mainly go to God when you're in a pinch? Do you go to God when all else fails? So, as you're thinking through those things, what do you make of that? If, if the answer is yes to any of those, what do you make of that? Do you like this? this uh, some people think this is in the Bible. It's not in the Bible. It's an anti-proverb. Okay, do you like this sentiment, or do you live like this sentiment? Often, God helps those who help themselves. Sorry, it's not in the Bible. That's an anti-proverb. Well, there you go. There's the introduction. Let's turn to Isaiah 33 and see what God thinks of that nonsense. (laughs) So how do you really feel, Chris? Okay. Um, Isaiah 33. There's an outline in the bulletin um, with the baptisms. We take the screen down, so no PowerPoint up there. You can follow along on the paper if it's helpful. Isaiah 33, we're just going to dive right in. Ah, you destroyer, who yourself have not been destroyed. You traitor, whom none has betrayed. When you have ceased to destroy, you will be destroyed. And when you finish betraying, they will betray you. All right. Now, once again, as we walk through the book of Isaiah, we're going to lots of times feel lost. Okay, so... If you were reading the Chronicles of Narnia or Lord of the Rings or, let's say you weren't reading the Chronicles of Narnia, you never never have, or the Lord of the Rings or Harry Potter or whatever, some series, and imagine you jumped into the fourth book, the 28th chapter or the 33rd chapter, um, and just read that chapter, you're going to be lost. You're going to read names of people that you have no idea who they are, and okay, so that's what's going on. So some of you have been with us through Isaiah for a while. You're familiar with the storylines. Makes a little bit more sense. Maybe, maybe not. <laughs> you may, might have been there, been here the whole way along. And, um, so we're going to have to go through the, the situation here briefly again. Uh, That's why a study Bible, a good study Bible, can be really helpful um, so that we can benefit from God's Word written all over the place, even in the Old Testament when we, we don't understand what's going on. Um, so big picture, Assyria is the big superpower of the time, and they're the big bully, making Judah pay tribute, pay taxes. In other words, give me your lunch money, and I'll leave you alone. You don't give me the lunch money, I'll come beat you up. Okay? So Hezekiah comes on the scene as king, southern kingdom, Judah, and he rebelled against that whole tribute tax idea. 2 Kings 18. We're going to actually look at a couple verses in 2 Kings. So can you flip back to 2 Kings? 
Um, and you'll see that the historical books and the prophet, prophetic books go like this. They, they kind of complement each other. They map into each other, okay? So the story that we're going to read about here in Isaiah 33 is actually present in, in historical form in 2 Kings. So 2 Kings 18.7. It's on page 325 if you're using the Pew Bible. So here's Hezekiah. He comes on the scene. The Lord was with him. Wherever he went, he prospered. He rebelled against the king of Assyria and would not serve him. Keep your finger in in 2 Kings 18. We're going to read a few more verses there. So Assyria then comes and conquers the northern kingdom. Remember, after Solomon, the kingdom's divided. So northern kingdom, southern kingdom. They conquered the northern kingdom. That was around Hezekiah's fourth year and his sixth year um, of his reign. Just wiped out the, the northern kingdom. In his 14th year, Hezekiah's 14th year as the king of the southern kingdom, Assyrian, Assyria came after them, southern kingdom. So rather than trusting in the Lord, Hezekiah tried to buy Egypt's help hey, would you help us? We've talked about this in past weeks. He also tried to pacify Assyria by paying them off. Did you know that? So look at 2 Kings 18, 13, just a few verses further. In the 14th year of King Hezekiah, see, I didn't make that up, um, Sennacherib, king of Assyria, came up against all the fortified cities of Judah and took them, all the satellite cities around the city of Jerusalem. And Hezekiah, king of Judah, sent to the king of Assyria at Lachish, saying, I've done wrong, Withdraw from me. Whatever you impose on me, I will bear. I'll pay the tribute. I'll pay the tax. And the king of Assyria required Hezekiah, king of Judah, 300 talents of silver and 30 talents of gold. Okay, a talent was like 75 pounds. This is a lot of cash. And Hezekiah gave him all the silver that was found in the house of the Lord and in the treasuries of the king's house. At that time, Hezekiah stripped the gold from the doors of the temple of the Lord and from the doorposts that Hezekiah, king of Judah, had overlaid and gave it to the king of Assyria. So kind of ironic that Hezekiah would use the gold from the temple but not call on the Lord of the temple. So they don't resort to trusting in the Lord. And then they use the Lord's treasures to try to buy off their enemy in a last-ditch attempt to save their skin. That might sound fairly contemporary, okay? But here's what happens. He got double-crossed. Hezekiah got double-crossed. He was betrayed. Assyria attacked them anyway. Look at verse 17 in 2 Kings 18. And the king of Assyria sent the Tartan, the Rabsaris, I don't know, military people, leaders, and the Rabshakeh, we'll get to him in Isaiah 36 and 37, with a great army from Lachish to King Hezekiah, Jerusalem. And they went up and came to Jerusalem. When they arrived, they came and stood by the conduit of the upper pool, which is on the highway to the washer's field. And when they called for the king, there came out to them Eliakim, the son of Hilkiah, who was over the household, and Shebna, the secretary, and Joah, the son of Asaph, the recorder. And Rabshakeh said to them, say to Hezekiah, this is some ancient Near Eastern smack talk, taunting, Say to Hezekiah, thus says the great king, obviously not you, our king, Sennacherib is the great king. Thus says the great king, the king of Assyria, on what do you rest this trust of yours? You relying on Egypt? Oh, are you relying on the Lord? So 
Hezekiah did his best. They did their best to pay off the bully, but their best wasn't enough. And now they've got no more bargaining chips. So if they've got some last resort, now is the time to use it. So we'll see where they went. But one more thing before we move on. Do you see, okay, flip back to Isaiah. (laughs) Isaiah 33 again. Those verses that were totally maybe hard to understand the first time we read through them. He's talking to Assyria. All of a sudden, the woe has changed from the hypocritical, idolatrous people of God. Now the woe, the ah, is pointed at Assyria. You destroyer, woe to you. Who yourself have not been destroyed, at least not yet. You traitor whom none has betrayed, at least not yet. You will be destroyed. And when you finish betraying, like he just did, they will betray you. So guess what happened to Sennacherib? We'll, we'll read this again in Isaiah 37, but don't flip back there. 2 Kings 19, the next chapter, then this is after this whole battle happens. Well, it's not much of a battle, but after this threat, Sennacherib goes home, king of Assyria departs, you know, the real king, the powerful one. He went home and lived at Nineveh, and as he was worshiping in the house of Nisroch, his god, Adremelech and Sherezer, his sons, struck him down with a sword and escaped into the land of Ararat. The betrayer was betrayed. Okay? So it sounds like God's word came true, which if you haven't noticed yet, that's kind of a a trend. Um, God's word tends to happen. Okay? So verse 2. Now we'll pick up some steam here in Isaiah 33. O Lord, be gracious to us. Remember, if they've got a last resort, they need to use it. Lord, be gracious to us. We wait for you. Be our arm every morning, our salvation in the time of trouble. So it sounds like they're hitting the bottom and they're starting to look up, right? It sounds like repentance and trust. Verse 3, at the tumultuous noise, people flee. When you, lift, when you lift yourself up, nations are scattered and your spoil is gathered as the caterpillar gathers as locusts leap it is leapt upon. So all the Lord has to do is stand up and the nations are scattered like ants off an elephant. So the nations have sought to assert themselves and plunder other kingdoms to exalt themselves, and now the Lord's going to tear them down and the world is going to be plundered. Everything exalted is going to be stripped bare and brought low because, verse 5, the Lord is exalted, for He dwells on high. He's the great king. He will fill Zion... This is the city of God as opposed to the city of man. He will fill Zion with justice and righteousness. Now, if you had read the whole series of books, not just jumping into the 33rd chapter, do you remember what the world was filled with? What Zion, the city that was supposed to be the city of God, was filled with back in chapters 1 and 2? Listen to this, Isaiah 2, 6. In fact, Think of Gina's testimony and think of how the Lord continues to do these things today. For you've rejected your people, the house of Jacob, because they are full of things from the east and of fortune tellers like the Philistines, and they strike hand with the children of foreigners. Their land is filled with silver and gold, and there's no end to their treasures. Their land is filled with horses, and there's no end to their chariots. Their land is filled with idols. They bow down to the work of their hands, to what their own fingers have made. So that's what was filling up what was supposed to be the city of God. 
And now the Lord is saying, you know what? I'm going to stand up and I'm going to get busy working among my people. And what's going to happen is the city of God's going to be filled with justice and righteousness, not with idols, not with blood. In, in chapter 1, it says that their hands are filled with blood, filled, filled with injustice. So the Lord's going to act and empty the world of injustice and bloodshed. He's going to fill it with justice and righteousness. So we look around and we go, well, he's not doing a very good job. Well, he starts individually one heart at a time. So those fortune tellers, those idols, he, he just did it with Gina. And if you're in Christ this morning, he's already done that with you. He you were filled up with all kinds of other things that you were trying to satisfy yourself with, trying to, trying to like, avoid all the things that you fear, all the threats in your life. You're, you're clinging to things to try to give you security and safety, right? And it doesn't work. When the Lord stands up and gets to work on you, he takes away all that stuff and he fills you with himself. He gives you his grace and produces righteousness. He makes you new. That's right. Amen. Me too. So, in fact, the Lord puts his cards on the table. If you, if you remember, like, what is, what's he up to in this world? Remember back in 11.9, here's what he's going to do. The earth will be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Everybody's going to know that he is the great king, that he is the real savior. And then verse 6 so Isaiah 33, 6, what happens when this happens, when he stands up and gets to work and people are trusting in him? He will be the stability of your times. Isn't that sweet? He will be abundance or wealth of salvation. This is not just getting saved by the skin of our teeth. He's got an abundance of salvation. He will be wisdom and knowledge. The fear of the Lord is Zion's treasure, the city of God. Our treasure is God. We fear him. And when you fear him, you don't have anything left to fear. Not even him. So you remember back to chapter 30? Again, this is a story, so that's why we have to pay attention all along. This all builds chapter by chapter. 30 verse 6 says that they'd gone after all these other gods that could not benefit them, profit them. So do you see the contrast here? The fear of the Lord is Zion's treasure as opposed to all this stuff that doesn't profit. So when we trust in the Lord, wait on the Lord, he's our regular resort. We resort to him regularly. The one in whom we take refuge, then verse 6 is our experience. He'll be the stability of our times and abundance of salvation and wisdom and knowledge. Listen to Thomas Watson who lived in the 1600s. This is what he said. This is great. The fear of God is a Christian's safety. He is invulnerable. Nothing can hurt him. Plunder him of his money. He carries a treasure about him of which he cannot be robbed. Cast him into prison. His conscience is free. Kill his body. It shall rise again. He who has on this breastplate of God's I'm sorry, he who has on this breastplate of God's fear may be shot at, but can never be shot through. So that's a huge stark contrast 
to what our self-sufficiency and our self-trust and our maneuvering and taking matters into our hands, our own hands, that when we do that, it gives us something totally different, not stability for our times, but something totally different. So when we resort to lesser saviors, let's see what happens. Look at verses 7 to 12, second point. Behold, their heroes cry in the streets. The envoys of peace weep bitterly. Remember the envoys in recent chapters going down to Egypt to buy their help? They sent these envoys, these caravans with money to, well, they're just weeping bitterly because it was no help. The highways lie waste. The traveler ceases. Covenants are broken. Cities are despised. There is no regard for man. There's just people are cheap. They're dealt with cheaply. There's no regard for human life. This is really ironic. Do you remember Isaiah 2.22? So again, that's one story. It all hangs together. But think about this. Back when, when God's confronting his people because of their rebellion and, and all of that, he says, stop regarding man in whose nostrils is breath. For of what account is he? Why are you so afraid of and so impressed by human power? It's just dust. So that was their problem, and now it's a real problem. It's actually come to roost. Do you see the connection? The idols we bow down to, thinking that they'll really serve us, if we bow down to these strong people around us to either protect us or we fear them so much, we're not running to the Lord, they end up turning on us and abusing us. That's why there's no regard for man. You've regarded man so much, now there's no regard for man. That idolatry came to roost. You made your bed, you're going to have to sleep in it. That's what happens. So when we regard people too highly and fear them, oh, what do they think? You know, just fear of people, people pleasing, all of that, it will betray us and we'll have to deal with the painful consequences. So, if you pu- think about it, if you fear people, live for their approval, their fickleness and unfaithfulness will come back to bite you, right? We probably experienced that. On the other hand, when you regard the Lord highly and don't fear people, when you live to please Him, whether it pleases or doesn't please others, He will be your reward, and He will bless that trust because. He's going to take care of you. And it's precisely because of his loving regard for people. (laughs) Do you see it? So the reason why there was no regard for human life is because there was so much regard for man. When you really regard the Lord, it ends up producing a loving, caring for people environment. Get it? So that's the irony of sin and rebellion. If you become a people pleaser, the more of a people pleaser you are, the less you'll please people. (laughs) And they're not going to trust you. So idolatry always leads to languishing and emptiness and desolation. Look at verse 9. The land mourns and languishes. Lebanon is confounded and withers away. Sharon is like a desert. And Bashan and Carmel shake off their leaves. We would pick different places, okay? But basically these are the vacation spots of the ancient Near East. Okay, so you can pick Belize and, you know, 
Casa del something or other in Mexico. I don't know what it, what it is, but here's the point. Even the best spots, earthly paradise, earthly places that people call heaven, they're hell without God. You're still going to be empty, ultimately. And when we trust in these things, they just, they languish, they wither in our hands, okay? So this is what our own devices get us. We, we hope that we can make this world a paradise, but where do our best efforts get us? The best things just languish and become desolate. But now God is going to intervene. Look at verse 10. Now I will arise, says the Lord. Now I will lift myself up. Now I will be exalted. Now at this point we're thinking, uh-oh, what does that mean? More judgment? It's a little ambiguous. This is maybe scary. Is this a threat? Is this hopeful? Well, we have to read on to, to figure it out. But verse 11, we're reminded that we can do nothing. Our best efforts, again, you, you conceive chaff. You give birth to stubble. Your breath is a fire that will consume you. And the peoples will be as if burned to lime like thorns cut down that are burned in the fire. So this is, this is the mess. These are the results that their own efforts, their own schemes resulted in. And it's the same for us. You know, it just gets burned up. So God is saying, your machinations, your schemes, you're taking matters into your own hands, you're maneuvering, you're, you're plotting and scheming. It's all going to get blown away. Have you ever seen somebody actually um, do this where they winnow and then they throw the weed up in the air? Do you know where the... Ch- I mean, it's, you could barely have any... Um, uh, you could not know that there's much breeze at all. It could be a very calm day, and you'll watch the chaff just go like this. This is so light. It's nothing. So that's what our best efforts are. All get blown away, end in smoking wreckage. So it's really clear what happens when we trust ourselves. And we know that Hezekiah and Judah tried everything else, and it brought them nothing but loss. Okay, but... Here they are, and they're turning to the Lord as their last resort. Remember, be our, be our strength, be our arm. Um, so how's the Lord respond to this? When they call on the Lord as their last resort, how's he respond? So they've experienced their failed efforts, their inability, their helplessness. You can imagine the Lord maybe saying like, Oh, so now you have some ears to hear? You've been sticking your fingers in your ears all this time, and now you're going to listen? Look at verse 13. Your efforts are empty. You can do nothing, but look what I've done. Hear, you who are far off, hear what I have done. And hear, you who are near, acknowledge my might. You're helpless, I'm strong. Verse 14, the sinners in Zion are afraid. Trembling has seized the godless. And here's what, they're, here's what they're saying as they tremble. Who among us can dwell with the consuming fire? Who among us can dwell with everlasting burnings? Oh no, we finally cried out to the Lord and he's wanting us to believe how powerful he is. So they've come to their senses at least enough to see their desperate need. But this very awakening and their eyes being opened also means that they're really painfully aware of the Lord's awesome holiness, and their wretched sinfulness. So guess what's happening? They're having the same experience that Isaiah did in chapter 6. Remember? The Lord shows up in the temple, 
And Isaiah is the prophet, and he sees the Lord, and he goes, woe is me, I'm undone. I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. I am toast. But what happened to Isaiah is exactly what needed to happen to all Israel, and it's also what needs to happen to all of us if it hasn't already. But what happened with Isaiah? It didn't end there with, woe is me, I'm in deep trouble. Remember the angel came with the the coal and touched his lips and his sin was atoned for. And then he was useful in God's hand and he was sent off to do God's will. So who can dwell with a God who's a consuming fire? Look at these conditions in verse 15. He who walks righteously and speaks uprightly, who despises the gain of oppressions, who shakes his hands, lest they hold a bribe, who stops his ears from hearing of bloodshed and shuts his eyes from looking on evil. Okay, this is what happens when real repentance and faith starts to take root. Because God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. And they change. And for those who trust and obey, there are these sweet promises. Look at verse 16. He will dwell on the heights, security. His place of defense will be the fortresses of rocks. Again, security. His bread will be given to him. Provision will be provided for. His water will be sure. So, big picture. Assyria knocked on the door. Hezekiah knows there's nowhere to turn but the Lord. 33-2, be gracious to us, deliver us. And this repentance was way overdue. So the Lord could have said, oh, so now you come to me? You know what? Just too little too late. I'm not going to help you now. But he doesn't. He delivers them. Like, oh, how merciful he is. I love it. Ray Ortland writes, he isn't put off by the disproportion between our paltry repentance and his overflowing grace. He accepts it at cost to himself. God is more ready to meet us than we are to meet him. <laughs> so yesterday, um, on the way down to Hannah's volleyball game, um, I, I love Josh Garrels, and he has a song called At My Table. Um, and it's somewhat, I think, autobiographical. And here are the words, and it just brought me to, well, sort of to tears. I mean, my eyes were watery. Um, And it's done this multiple times. So listen to these words. I went the ways of wayward winds in a world of trouble and sin, walked a long and crooked mile behind a million rank and file, forgot where I came from somewhere back when I was young. Then the second verse is, because I lost some nameless things, my innocence flew away from me. She had to hide her face, I think, she being either the church or Lady Wisdom or something like that on God's behalf. She had to hide her face from my desire to embrace forbidden fire. But at night, I dream she's singing over me. Oh, oh, my child, come on home, home to me, and I will hold you in my arms and joyful be. There will always, always be a place for you at my table. Return to me. So it was the reminder to me again of my life before the Lord laid hold of me. I knew the truth. 
but the Lord was my last resort. I was the stubborn rebel. I was the prodigal son. And he still had mercy on me. And I think some of you can relate. And maybe some of you are still holding out, thinking something else will be better. It's a lie. Don't treat the best resort as your last resort. And even if you come to him as your last resort, he'll still take you, which is so sweet. So it, and you know what? For those of us that are trusting in Christ, we know how prone we are to wander. And you know what? Have you ever been drifting and you're not really walking with the Lord and you know, you're just you're so busy and everything else is more important and you're not really reading and, and then all of a sudden you hit a real crisis and you really need to turn to the Lord. What do you think at those moments? You ever had this happen? What do you think? Oh, like he's going to help me now. We treat God like he's a great big one of us. Oh, now you come to me? See, that's, that's how a human would respond. Yeah, see if I help you. I think I'll enjoy watching you grovel and wreathe. No. What if he's the one who took away the props and the crutches and pulled the carpet of your self-sufficiency away precisely because he wanted you to come back to him? Come back home. There's place at my table. Do you know why he's willing to be our last resort? Because he wants to be our last resort. Like as in, what's after him? Once you get him, once you know his power, his his grace, you don't need anything else. Listen to the way Jesus talked. I'm the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall never, ever hunger. And whoever believes in me shall never, ever thirst. In other words, if you come to me, you will so know soul satisfaction that you won't need to go anywhere else. So he will never disappoint us or let us down or leave a bad taste in our mouths. It's only idolatry that does that. Those who wait on the Lord will renew their strength. It will happen because he's a real savior, a real help, a real king. You need no other resort. You don't have to resort to any other savior. And you know what? It only gets better from here. He will be our everlasting resort. Okay, so yeah, I'm changing the usage of resort. I'm not trying to be cute here, but there is a lot to think about. It's a very helpful word, resort. Look at verses 17 to 24, when the Lord is our everlasting resort. So this vision in Isaiah 33 presses beyond the immediate deliverance from the Assyrian threat to the day when all threats will be removed and everything will be perfect peace and holistic flourishing. Yes, it's about Assyria, but it's bigger than that. Look at verse 17. Your eyes will behold the king and his beauty. They will see a land that stretches afar. Your heart will muse on the terror. Where is he who counted? Where is he who weighed the tribute? Where is he who counted the towers? You'll think back to those threats that it was so terrorizing and it's just gone. You will see no more the insolent people, the people of an obscure speech that cannot comprehend. Again, the the conquerors come in and you hear them in their other language and you're like, we don't understand what they're saying. It, It was judgment. It was God's judgment. 
but now you won't even see them. You won't hear them anymore. There's no more threats. The Lord will have dealt with every single one of them. Look at verse 20. Behold, Zion, the city of our appointed feast, your eyes will see Jerusalem. This is is the city of God ultimately coming down in all of its fullness, an untroubled habitation, an immovable tent whose stakes will never be plucked up, nor will any of its cords be broken, but there the Lord in majesty will be for us a place of broad rivers and streams where no galley with oars can go nor majestic ship can pass. So Assyria and Egypt both had major rivers and Judah did not. The rivers were this military advantage for protection. And they were also an economic advantage for trade and commerce, right? So was it a disadvantage for Judah that they didn't have a river? No, because they had the Lord. He was like a river to them, okay? So all the advantage, none of the disadvantage is what's going on here. He's going to be like a river. But you know what? No threat's going to come down that river. Only blessing. Because the city of God has God. That's why Psalm 46 is such an appropriate passage. There's this river that makes glad the city of God, the holy habitation of the Most High. So for us now, the church is this in foretaste. When we know that God is for us, who can be against us? But still, see, police lights or fire, you know, like there's still lots of threats. But in the new creation, when Jesus returns, makes all things new. It's fullness. Look at verse 22. For the Lord is our judge, leader, like think of the book of Judges, deliverer, leader. The Lord is our lawgiver. The Lord is our king. He will save us. God is everything to us. He's our last resort because... When we experience his deliverance, we realize that he's everything. He should be our first resort, our last resort, and every resort in between. Listen to Jonathan Edwards here. God is the highest good of the reasonable creature, and the enjoyment of him is the only happiness with which our souls can be satisfied. To go to heaven fully to enjoy God is infinitely better than the most pleasant accommodations here. Fathers and mothers, husbands, wives, or children, or the company of earthly friends are but shadows. But the enjoyment of God is the substance. These are but scattered beams, but God is the sun. These are but streams, but God is the fountain. These are but drops, but God is the ocean. Therefore, it becomes us to spend this life only as a journey toward heaven, as it becomes us to make the seeking of our highest and proper good the whole work of our lives, to which we should subordinate all other concerns of life. Why should we labor for or set our hearts on anything else but that which is our proper end and true happiness? When he's our last resort, he's our last resort because there's nothing better. There's nothing beyond the Lord. And then look at the end there. Your cords hang loose. They cannot hold the mast firm in its place or keep the sail spread out. Then prey and spoil in abundance will be divided. Even the lame will take the prey, which sounds really weird, but here's the cool thing. It's, It's picturing Judah like a broken down ship. The people of God like a broken down ship and that broken down ship is going to win the victory and collect the spoils. What? That's weird. Yeah, that's because the victory is won by another. (laughs) So it's a really cool picture of God's fighting for them. 24, no inhabitant will say I'm sick. Again, it's pressing beyond to the new heavens and the new earth when all things are made new. The people who dwell there will be forgiven their iniquity. All things made new. No more sickness, death, tears, mourning, crying, pain. And then Isaiah uses this really interesting word for forgiven in verse 24. 
It's the same word for lifted up or to, to bear a burden. Okay, it was actually used in Leviticus 16 of the goat. Remember on the Day of Atonement, they sacrificed one and then they would lay the hands on the goat and confess the sins of the people and then that goat would be sent away and it would bear away the sins of the people. Remember that? Day of Atonement, bearing away the sins. This same word is used of Jesus. Surely he has borne our griefs, Isaiah 53, and carried our sorrows. And then again, 53.12, he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgression. So this passage anticipates the day, the greater day of atonement that came when Jesus died to bear our sins away forever. No one else could do it. He's our last resort. God's always been our last resort. Isn't that great? Who else is going to bear away our sin? For real, who else is going to, who's, who's going to be able to defend us against death and hell and Satan? So, Bethel, let's live Isaiah 33 too. Oh, Lord, be gracious to us. We wait for you. Be, you be our arm every morning, our salvation in the time of trouble. And when that's where we live, our experience is going to be Isaiah 33, 6, and he will be the stability of your times. Don't you want that? Abundance of salvation, abundance of wisdom, abundance of knowledge, and the fear of the Lord is Zion's treasure. And then we're going to sing now, close by singing a song that calls us to live like this. So as the musicians come up, think about how wonderful it is and how like our God to take stubborn rebels who only turn to him as their last resort, even though he's the best resort and should be our first and only resort, and then he gives us himself as our everlasting treasure and resort. What a great God and Savior. Let's pray. Oh God, we bless you and thank you. You are so good and kind and merciful. Be gracious to us. Be our arm of strength and deliverance every morning, every day. In Jesus' name.